0: Uh, the entirety of this message is really an invitation, so this is it. You're going to be invited all the way along to uh, reflect better your Father's heart because, of course, this is Father's Day, and we're going to be talking about the Father's heart and speaking about good, good hearts and good dads. Uh, these flowers were given in uh, memory of uh, Ray Young. And uh, I'm glad... I, Carla, are you over there? I, I don't have... There she is. Uh, Ray is just a very, very special man of this church, and uh, his uh, heart reflected the father, and so just glad to remember him in that way. But I know we've got a lot of people with some great hearts around here, and today I just want to spend a little time making sure our hearts are recalibrated that is that they're they're matching up with our heavenly fathers because being a good father, it's not really that easy i uh, I heard the story about these two these two young men, these two boys, and I don't know why in the story, Pam, I was thinking about y- your kids, but these kids were very high-energy children. I don't know the connection. Uh, but anyways, these two kids, uh, they were growing up, and uh, they, they, had, they liked having fun and pulling pranks together. And so they made this decision that they were going to go out behind their houses years ago and uh, push over the outhouse. Now, in the first service, I asked people, how many of y'all remember outhouses and it was over half? I don't think we'll have that many in here, but you know, back in the day, they, it could be kind of tenuous, and people liked to do that sort of prank. So these kids walk around to the back of the house. Actually, they snuck out there and from the woods, kind of like a couple of commandos, they come out and, and push over the outhouse and then run right back into the woods. An hour later, they circle around. So they come up to the front of the house to sort of throw off the scent, so to speak, so that nobody would really suspect that it was them. But as they're coming to the front of the house, the dad is there to greet them. And the dad says, tell me the truth, boys, did you push over the outhouse? And... The oldest son, who's the spokesman of the two, said, well, I cannot tell a lie. We did push over the outhouse. And with that, the dad spanked both of them pretty hard, sent them up to their rooms. They didn't have supper that night and went to bed. The next morning, the two boys are sitting at the table, kind of waiting for the dad to show up. Dad shows up a little bit late. The tension is there. And then finally, the dad breaks the tension when he says to the two kids, did you learn your lesson? And the older brother again says, well, Dad, we did learn our lesson, but here's what we learned. We learned in school that when George Washington told his dad that he chopped down the cherry tree, his dad didn't punish him because he told the truth. And then the dad said, well, yeah, that's true. But George's dad wasn't in the cherry tree when he chopped it down. Um, Sometimes it's really difficult as a dad to do what a dad needs to do Because you're personally involved in the dynamic of the family. This isn't like, oh, I'm at a distance and I'm making these decisions. No, you're in the midst of the dynamic which complicates things. On top of that, we just have these general questions about do I press hard or do I relent? Is this the time when I give the lecture? Is this the time when I just listen? Or is this the time where we give and take? Is this where I lay down the law? Or is this the moment when we kind of negotiate some matters together? It's a little bit difficult being a dad, and I don't have all the answers obviously, but I, I have learned this much from my personal experience and from observing other dads, and that is you're going to do a better job as a dad or as a mom when your heart reflects the heart of your heavenly father. Because much of parenting and, and, and a great deal of leadership is just an activity of an overflowing heart that is like your father's. You you lead from, you parent from, your center. And so today what we're going to do is just think about the father's heart. And my invitation to you is if you notice where your heart is off, just bring it back as best you can to where it needs to be to reflect your father's heart. All right, so with that, I'm going to invite you to stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. We're going to be looking at uh, one of my favorite psalms. This is Psalm 103, verses 8. as a father he has compassion on his children so the lord has compassion on those who fear him for he knows how we are formed he remembers that we are dust as for man his days are like grass he flourishes like a flower of the field the wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more may god bless the reading of his word you may be seated Uh, this text that speaks of the love of of god for his people lets us know four basic things about his father father heart And uh, here here they are. I'll just go ahead and give you the preview. Uh, We see that he has a a long fuse, a short memory, thick skin, and uh, a a really big heart. First of all, we see he has a long fuse because the whole thing begins in verse 8 where it says, the Lord is compassionate and, and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Now, this quotation is of an Old Testament text that occurs some 500 years before David. And there are other writers in the Bible that refer back to this verse that originally appears in the book of Exodus. Here's the story. Uh, originally, Moses is on top of Mount Sinai, and he's conversing with God, and God's about to give him these Ten Commandments. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, an amazing, it's an amazing moment, and God gives the Ten Commandments, but then God notices that the people at the base of the mountain, of course, are not responding to God's graciousness the way they should. They're worshiping this golden calf, and it's made of human hands, and they're the ones that made it out of their discarded jewelry. It's a, it's a total disaster. God tells Moses, I'm going to destroy these people. It says, I will, I'm going to nuke these party animals. That's the New Living Translation. And, uh, and Moses says, no, 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 please don't do that. Don't destroy them. You know, we, we need you to, to, to relent. And God says, okay, I'm not going to destroy you. Moses, I did want to start over with you, but I'm not going to do that. You just go on your way. I'll go on my way. Let's, let's just part ways. And Moses says to the Lord, no, we, we can't go on without you. We're nothing without you. And God says, okay, I'll go on with you. I'll start all over. And God is very gracious. And he takes Moses back to the top of Mount Sinai and gives him the Ten Commandments again. Because if you remember the story, the first time around when Moses comes down, he sees the people. He gets really upset and throws down the stone tablets. And it's the only time in all the Bible where all Ten Commandments are broken simultaneously. And it happens to be Moses who does it. Uh, So God takes them back to the top, gives them some more tablets. And before God gives them the Ten Commandments again, God's presence passes before Moses. And as God is passing before Moses, God is saying this. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And and that's the the verse that David quotes in Psalm 103, verse 8. So especially when you remember the context, what this verse is communicating is, yes, God does get angry, and when God does get angry, he's angry for all the right reasons. It's a righteous and holy anger. But God reaches his boiling point really, really, really slowly. He has incredible patience. And yet, the Bible teaches that the reason that God is so patient Is because he's hoping that people are going to take advantage of this extension and re-extension of his grace in the best of ways so that they'll confess their sin, receive forgiveness, and hopefully obey God wholeheartedly without reservation and with joy. Unfortunately, when people see God being patient and extending his grace and extending his grace and extending his grace, oftentimes people mistake that for God not really caring that much about my disobeying ways, about my self-willed disobedience. And so people abuse the patience of God, and yet as they're abusing the patience of God, God's still being patient, which means God's super patient. He has a very, very long fuse. The second thing we see here in this passage is that God has a, a really short memory. The very next verse, He will not always accuse, nor will He harbor His anger forever. One guy complained. To his to his buddy, whenever I get in an argument with my wife, she always gets historical, and and he says, "What do you mean? You mean hysterical?" He says, "No, historical. She dredges up the past and reminds me of every time I ever failed her." And women can do that toward men, men can do that toward women, and parents can do that toward children. Uh, God never does that. Once the sin has been confessed, once it's dealt with, He doesn't get historical. He doesn't dredge it up. He doesn't throw it in your face. In fact, the Bible tells us in Psalm 130 verse 3 that if God kept a detailed record of your sins and of my sins, we couldn't possibly stand in his presence. Isaiah 57 explains that if God did continually put our failures in our face, we would faint and wither away. So when you go to God and you say, God, I got historical with my kids. I should have said this and I kind of diminished and I'm sorry, please forgive me. God doesn't ever say, well, I just want you to know that I, I only forgive up to 50 times and you're at 73 this year because I'm keeping a detailed record of all your wrongs and I'm sorry, your punch card's all been punched out. That's not how God does it. Once the sin's been dealt with, once it's confessed, once you come into agreement with God, He completely forgets about it. He has an incredibly short memory. There's something else that's true of God in this passage and that is He has thick skin the very next verse verse 10 he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay according to our iniquities if god punished us every time that we ever deserved it we would be in a perpetual state of retribution god would constantly be saying to you or to me look your your pride's got to go you got these ego issues you, you're indifferent toward the loss, you're indifferent to the poor, you're materialistic, you're selfish, da, da 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 It's like, I don't want to hear that all day. And you know what? God doesn't actually want to throw that in our face all the time. It's not that God doesn't care about our sin. It's just that He is long-suffering. There's a word in the Bible that's used pretty frequently to talk about God being thick-skinned, and that would be, I think, forbearance. First Peter chapter four, verse eight says, love covers over a multitude of sins. God doesn't always bring up everything to us all the time because he simply chooses not to. Why? Well, because God is patient. He's, he's forbearing. It's not that God doesn't take our sins seriously. It's just that, you know, as a parent, you deal with your three-year-old different than you deal with your 10-year-old and you deal with your 10-year-old different than you deal with your 15-year-old and so forth and so on. It's, God is forbearing. Why? Because He does not want to crush us. He wants to liberate us. He doesn't want to knock us down, but He does want to help with our reformation and transformation. He's forbearing. Here's what I mean. Years ago, well, you know, a few years ago, I was a freshman at Baylor University. And uh, I gained the reputation while I was there of being kind of uh, Crazy at least my freshman year. Because I I went to college completely unprepared, at least in terms of attitude. I just, when I got there, I thought, yay, summer camp for a year. This is going to be fantastic. And I did okay in school, but my attitude or disposition was sort of weird. I didn't do anything illegal, not outright, just a lot of pranks. And I got in trouble. Um, In fact, when my son went to Baylor as a freshman, uh, just last year, when he was talking to his roommate and his roommate's dad, uh, his dad, the roommate's dad, asked my son, so well, tell him about your dad. Well, my dad's name is Ernest. And this guy started talking about, oh, yeah, I knew an Ernest at Baylor. That guy was nuts. And started telling these stories, and my son says, that's my dad. Uh, so I'm just, I, it's kind of, it was, it was a dark period of of my life. But anyways, uh, my freshman, first semester of my freshman year, one of the things that really got me in trouble is i just gotten back from Gold Gym. I worked out with this guy named Rodney who had this Starsky and Hutch kind of Camaro. And it didn't have a trunk because it was filled with audio equipment. It was just, you know, back in the day, you wanted to blow people's eardrums out. And I want to write a letter to Rodney and say, you, you did it to me. Uh, and we, we were coming back, and we, the music was real loud, and this is back when Striper was a big deal. Remember Christian heavy metal, you know, to hell with the devil. Woo! Why don't we sing that in here sometime, John? I don't know, but anyways, we're coming back, and you know, they had the tight pants and all that, you know, the long hair and makeup or whatever. It's crazy. Anyways, um, so we were listening to that, and I don't know. We just finished working out, so there's no blood in our heads. It was all in our, you know, limbs, and so we get back to the, the campus in the afternoon, and. It just looked like a good idea to drive into the middle of the campus onto the intermural fields and do donuts. Now, this was, this was really when all the dorms were around the, the intramural field. There, was, there were dorms on the north and the, the west and the south side, and the student center was directly to the east. I mean, the intramural fields were right there in the middle of campus, and it was 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And so we thought, oh, that'll be fun. That's great. So we drove out, on, and we thought, well, the, t- the field's going to get torn up in about two weeks anyways because they did this thing where you chased pigs that were covered in mud and all that stuff. And So we just thought, we're going to help prepare the field for that. So we drove out there, and we're doing donuts like five or six times. It wasn't a whole lot. And then pulled back into the park. Well, I didn't think it was a whole lot. <laughs> what? Oh, man. Woo, I feel the judgment from you, Anyway, so we we, got, we parked, and then it occurred to us, hey, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. And then we ran into the dorm, and the dorm director said, you guys are in trouble. And that's when it really hit us. So we jumped into the showers, and we just thought, we're going to stay in the showers until the search is over, and they're going to forget about it. So, and nobody looks for guys in the showers, because that's creepy. And so we just stayed in the showers until finally the cops came and got us out of the showers. Uh, and we were like albino prunes by the time they showed up and... And so I called my mom because I knew I was going to see the dean of men the next day. And I called my mom and said, good news, I might be home early from college. Yay. And so I went and saw the dean of men. Making a long story short, here's what happened. You know what the dean of men did to me? Nothing. Nothing. Said, just keep your nose clean. Don't ever do that again. It's like, yes, sir. And I straightened up totally until the next semester. And I'm going to tell you what I did. You can ask me afterwards, but it just, okay, it wasn't real bad, but it was kind of, Barry would totally judge me. Uh, so, I went and saw, so I went and saw the dean of men again, and you know what happened? Because I thought, oh, this is it. Nothing. Just don't do that again. Okay. See, if you do really crazy, nutty things that nobody expects, and they say, don't do it again, it's like, okay, good, I already did it. Uh, but anyways, here, here's the point. I thought I was going to get expelled the first time. I thought I was going to get expelled the second time, and I didn't. I deserved it, but it didn't happen. And, and I'm very grateful because the upstanding moral citizen that you see in front of you now owes a great deal to the fact that there was a dean of men who gave me a second chance and, and a second second chance. Our fathers like that. We do deserve to get more than we get. So if you ever wonder or say, you know, I'm just not getting what I deserve. Thank the Lord that you're not getting what you deserve. He's forbearing. It's not that he doesn't care about your behavior, your lifestyle, your attitude or disposition or your character. It's just that we've got a forbearing God who wants you to reach your potential in life and is not out to crush you. That's the kind of God we have. Because all that leads to the, the fourth point, and that is he has a big big heart. First of all, he's got a, a long fuse, short memory, thick skin, and a really, really big heart. This, the scripture passage tells us very straightforwardly, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Which, by the way... Um, in the Psalms, you have this, this technique. It's called parallelism. It's a, it's a poetic thing. It, 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 when things are parallel, they kind of comment on one another. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for us. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. These comment, these comment, and you get the cross section. In other words, what I mean to say is, the way we measure God's love, because this is infinite, and okay, this is infinite and this is infinite, as far as the heavens are above the Earth, as far as the east is from the West infinite, infinite. God's love is measured by His extensive, unrelenting, immeasurable forgiveness. When you think about the forgiveness of God, you cannot help but think about the greatness of his heart and what his heart is is immeasurable. I love the imagery here. We know as, as high as the heavens are above the earth, well, that's infinite. I mean, you get in a spaceship and you travel at warp speed, you're going to spend your entire life and you're not even going to get close to the ceiling of the heavens. As far as the east is from the west, I, I know I've, I think I've done this before, but it's worth a, a reminder here. I brought a globe just to show you this. Um, yeah, these these kind of went away when outhouses did probably, but Let's just start here in the center of the earth, if I can find it. Yeah, there it is, Texas. Um, Well, did you not know? Hey, you heard it here in church. It's not Illinois, I can tell you that. Um, If you start traveling west... And you keep going and you keep going. At what point do you start going east? Never. You start going east. At what point do you start going west? Never. But if you start going north, there's a certain point where you're going to start going south. And if you go south, there's a certain point where you go north. And we all know where north and south meet. It's at the equator or Alabama. Uh, But God didn't say as far as the north is from the south, so far have I removed your transgressions. From you. It's as far as the East is from the West. That's an infinite distance. You want to know the Father's heart for you? You know the extent of his love for you. It is without measure. And if you want to think about just how seriously God takes care of our sins, how amazing his love and his heart is for us, you just go through the Old Testament. There's all kinds of wonderful metaphors. For example, I'll just mention a few. This is over in Micah chapter 7, verse 19. It says, God says, You will again have compassion. It says of God, you will have have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. In Isaiah chapter 38, it says he'll put your sins behind his back so that he can't see them. In Isaiah chapter 43, it talks about how he will blot out our sins. And I'd heard this illustration before. You know, back in the day when you would type and you would do an error, you could get out the white out and cover over it, and then you could retype on top of it. But I don't like that illustration because you know that there was a mistake. You may not know what the mistake is, but you can see clearly a mistake was made. When God blots out our sin, you don't even know that there was a mistake that was made. It's just completely and totally covered so that nobody even knows not only what the mistake was, they don't even know that there was a mistake or a sin that was ever committed because it's been blotted out. You can't see it. When God takes care of our sins, it's out of his mind. Over in uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, it talks about how God takes our sins and he chooses just to push them out of his mind. They're no longer in his memory anymore. In Isaiah chapter 44, the scripture talks about God taking care of our sin like the sun takes care of the dew on the grass. When the sun comes up, the dew just disappears into thin air. It's just not there. It's it's not just that he it's just not that it's a past thing. It's not there in his head anymore. He chooses not to remember. Do you know the extent of freedom that comes when not only is God not holding it against you anymore, but it's just, he's completely put it out of his mind. You confess a sin to God that's already been taken care of that that you've already dealt with together. It's almost like you're reminding God, Hey, remember that time? No, I didn't. Thanks for bringing it up because I don't, I didn't remember that. Actually, I don't think God thanks us for bringing up what's already been dealt with. It's an insult to him. Because he said, I dealt with that sin already. You already stand forgiven. Why would you assume that I didn't mean what I said? Why would you assume that my grace is any less effective than the sun to burn off the water from the grass? Why do you think that the blood of Jesus Christ is not effective to blot out your sins? Why are you bringing this up again? I didn't bring it up again. You're insulting me. Do you know the depth of His forgiveness? Have you received that? This is what God expects of you and me, to come to Him and just to confess our sin, to receive forgiveness, to receive the infilling of the Holy Spirit, to know that we've been liberated and set free and to live in that kind of love. And I can tell you, even if you've experienced this kind of love and forgiveness in your life, it's entirely possible not to be basking in that kind of grace because you forget. And I have a tendency to forget too that God's got a really long fuse and a really short memory and a really thick skin and an immeasurable heart. Because he's a good, good father. I love the way that this particular passage closes here. Verses 13 through 16. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. David here is not just talking about our brevity of life he's talking more along the lines of our frailty and it's not very it's not very flattering we're dust we're we're grass these images that i don't know they don't make me feel that good about myself it's it's like this kid who was in sunday school and his teacher was talking about how in the beginning god formed us from dust and breathed life into us and when we breathe our last we return to dust from from dust you came to dust you return and the young man said Well, I've got a couple of people under my bed. I just can't tell if they're coming or going. And I thought, well, that's interesting because when you see dust on the ground under your bed or you see dust on the counter or you're dusting, you're just like, that's me. That's not flattering. That's a man's days. The other is just the picture of grass or flower under the heat. Now, I was uh, at uh, Alto Frio camp a couple of weeks ago. Great camp. Kids had a good time. Mark did a great job leading But here's the deal. One day it was 110 degrees. You could stand out there and watch the grass in real time, dying. I'm not kidding, but by the time the camp was over, it seemed like there was less grass than there was at the beginning. That's your life. It's grass. It's dust. You say, well, that's just not very flattering. Well, no, it's not. But it's a good thing that God knows how you're made and that he remembers that we're dust and flowers. Because God takes our frailty into account when He deals with us. That's why He's so gentle. We may think that we're invincible. God never forgets that we're not. And that's why He deals with us the way that He does. And that's a good thing. I'm not saying that as a good father, you don't sometimes press or that you always have to use kid gloves and that you can't demand of your kids that they kind of step up to the plate and all the rest. But as a good earthly father takes into account their child's age, their disposition, their personality, their physical limitations, their intellectual limitations, social limitations, peer pressure at school and all the rest. Just like an earthly father takes all those things into account, why do you think your heavenly father doesn't take that into account with you and with other people around you? Isaiah 42 talks about how a bruised reed he will not break. It's like, you know, a stem on a a flower kind of bends over and it's all bruised. You just kind of want to finish the job, and God says, I don't do that. I'm gentle. There's so many times in the Scripture where God does not deal with us according to our sins. He deals with us gently. Times when I think if I were in God's shoes, I would have done it differently. perfect example of this is Elijah. You know the story of Elijah. Some of you do. Elijah's this great prophet, and he's really not the kind of guy who needs a lot of coddling. He's accustomed to confronting wicked kings, Stubborn crowds, false prophets. In fact, the the favorite story of most people when when you come to Elijah is a time when there's these 850 false prophets, and Elijah by himself challenges all of them. He says, here's the contest. We're going to have an altar over here and an altar over here, and you guys try to call fire down by your gods from the sky onto the altar, and I'll call down fire from the sky onto my altar. We'll see who wins. The false prophets of Baal, they go after it, and they're screaming and cutting themselves and tearing their clothes and all the rest, and nothing happens. Elijah simply says a prayer. Pretty simple, pretty humble. And God sends a fire down on that sacrifice, on that altar that is so intense, it not only consumes the sacrifice, but all the water that was poured on the altar and all the stones. Everything's incinerated. It's an incredible victory. And then right after that, Jezebel, who's this wicked queen and gets insulted by all of this, she sends word, I'm going to kill you. Now, Elijah gets terrified and he runs for his wife. And, and if I'm God, I'm saying, now, wait a second. Do you not see what I just did? Pssh, pssh. What is wrong with you? But, you know, God's, God's not like me. We ought to put a billboard up. God is not like our pastor. Come to Main Street. Um, you know, he's not like me. God's super gentle. You know how you can be afraid of one thing but not another. I mean, some people are afraid of public speaking, but they they wouldn't be afraid of swimming with sharks. Some people are afraid of spiders, but they're not afraid of snakes. It's like well, I don't understand this. It's just weird. Everybody's got their weak spots, and I don't know why Elijah's afraid of one woman. My theory is his mother was real difficult, but that's just my psychoanalysis. You're not going to read that in any textbook, okay? But for whatever reason. Totally dominates these 850 false prophets, totally sees God do an incredible miracle, and he's freaking out and he's running from this, this one lady. And you know what God does? Elijah's exhausted, physically exhausted, spiritually exhausted. He's feeling like he's alone, like I'm the only one here, and he's getting really, really whiny. And you know what God does? He sends food to Elijah, he causes him to fall into a really deep sleep. He assures him, you're not the only one. There's 7,000 others. And he assures him, listen, there's there's a hope and this is really going somewhere. And he sets Elijah back on his feet again. So gentle. If you've ever gotten to a point in your life where you've thought, I don't think I can take one more thing. Has that ever happened to you? I don't think I can take one more sleepless night. I don't think I can take one more bad medical report. I don't think I can take one more tongue lashing from my spouse. I don't think that I can take one more job put on my desk by my spouse i don't think i can take one more disappointment from my family i just don't think i can take one more thing if that's ever happened to you and you just thought god do you know my limitations god's answer to you is listen i remember that you're dust i remember You're just grass. I know your limitations better than you do. You may forget your limitations, but I never do. But here's the thing. I also know that I am relentlessly for you and on your side and in your life. And I'll never leave you nor forsake you because I've got a really long fuse and a really short memory and a really thick skin and a really, really big heart toward you. And I know your limitations, but I know my limitations, and I have none. There's something about knowing the Father's heart that restores yours when it's kind of feeling weak. And I'll tell you something else. In those moments as a dad where you feel a little stressed or as a mom when you feel a little stressed or a little stretched, it's kind of helpful to know that your father has an ultimate agenda and that is to reform your heart to be like his. And people need that kind of a heart. Because we live in a world that's filled with people who have short fuses and long memories and thin skin and dried up shriveled hearts. Do you think people around you need to know the Father? Do you think people around you need to see the Father's heart? Absolutely. And that's the Father's agenda for your life and here's the encouragement and here's essentially kind of the benediction this morning i know a great many people in this service and the next service and i would say the father's heart's being reflected in yours you may not always see it or recognize it but there are people around you that see the good work that god is doing in your life continue abiding in the father's love and continue being transformed into his image because god is doing a good Thing in you. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your Father's heart. We thank you for the simple reminder of who you are. And we pray that you'll continue the, the good work that you've begun in the dads in this room and of this congregation. Lord, I pray that you will help us to abide in your word, to abide in your love, to walk closely with You because we need to know Your heart and we know Your heart needs to be revealed in and through us. Thank You for the dads. Thank You for the high calling. And thank You for the empowerment that You've given us by Your Son to be like You. Help us to go out from this place energized and focused to reflect your heart to other people. And it is by your grace and your grace alone that this occurs and to your glory that we do it. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's blessed holy name. Amen.